This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Okay, welcome to the Pig Pen. I'm R.C. Christensen, and I'm a guest host today. That's because I'm going to be interviewing Darren Hayes, who normally hosts this show, because he has written a great book, and I want everyone to know more about it. So how are you doing today, Darren? R.C., I am doing great, and uh, thank you for this uh, kind offer of sort of turning the tables here. Uh, I'm sitting on the other side of the, the desk during this interview. Actually, we're doing a Zoom call, but uh, you know, this, this is a, a great honor, and I, I appreciate you uh, bringing us up. Great idea. Well, you've written a great book, and and so the book, if, if people haven't heard yet, uh, Darren has written uh, a book called The World's Greatest Pro Gridiron Team, the 1903 Franklin All-Stars, and uh, this is a, a book that's brand new this month. Is that correct? Yeah, came out uh, right uh, before Thanksgiving, so a little, little over a month old now. Okay, so it's actually been out a little while. Okay, um, all right. And I, I as soon as I found out about this book, I raced out and bought it, and I read it in one day. And I've got a bunch of questions ab- about the book, Darren. So, do you want to just get into it? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Um, so, the nineteen oh three Franklin All Stars. I'm pretty sure. You know, you ask anybody, they're they're going to be like, "What is that team?" Right. So, why don't you tell everyone why did you choose to write about this team? Well, exactly what you just said. Uh, I I've lived like 40, 50 miles away from Franklin. I I work with a bunch of people that are either grew up in Franklin or still live in Franklin. And when I asked them about the nineteen oh three Franklin team, they said what Franklin had a football team and it's a common thing. It's the first time I ever heard of them was probably four or five years ago, reading a PFRA uh, old coffin corner uh, article. I think coffin corner has a couple articles on Franklin, probably from the late seventies, early eighties. And it was, because Franklin is in my area and I officiated some high school games down there for Franklin high school against oil city high school, who are sort of the main, uh, protagonists and antagonists in this uh, story it was team wise it caught my interest and i said i got to learn more about this and uh, i dove into it you know and uh, just a great story and uh it's great great for the locality around us and it's great for football and it's a story that needs to be told well the first pe- thing that people see of course on a book is the cover and and the and the cover uh it features a, a picture of the team um and also, of course, the title. So the title, again, is the world's greatest pro gridiron team uh, with the subtitle, the 1903 Franklin All-Stars. So the title of the book is quite a statement. How did you decide it was the best, most suitable title for this book? Pretty arrogant title, isn't it? Kind of kind of talking here. Well, I actually didn't call them the world's greatest pro gridiron team. 
the Franklin Evening News back in 1903 was calling them the greatest team, greatest on earth, was you know very common uh, on a daily newspaper article. They wrote about this team. I mean, this is 1903, three years before the forward passes in football. The football field looks like a, a giant grid, and that's where they got the term gridiron because there's five-yard squares all over the field in that, that era. And, uh, you know, this team was a team of, they were the Franklin All-Stars. Well, they were truly a team of All-Stars. And they really, uh, after reading up on them and doing some research and jotting down the data and the numbers, which we'll talk about in a little bit, I think they really might have been the world's greatest pro gridiron team. I think the papers got it right 120 years ago. And they really do come across as just a strong uh, opponent for everyone that they faced. Um, just a little bit more about the book. Uh, one of the features of this book is do you have bonus content? And so the, the reader sees QR codes and they can uh, use their phone and jump out there and, and uh, uh, listen to interviews and, and things like that. Um, when and why did you decide to include bonus content? What was, what was the driver for that? Well, I, uh, you know, just like you, I read a lot of football books, uh, you know, for a while there, I'm, I'm doing maybe five or six football, you know, history books uh, a month. And I mixed them up. I had some eBooks. I had some regular old fashioned, you know, hardback books and paperbacks and read them on PDFs. And I, I like different aspects of each of those uh, genres of, of reading. I like the eBooks, how you can jump to a, a hyperlink and go to someplace else to get some bonus content. And I said, and I, I use a lot of QR codes in my job uh, working in a factory here in Erie. And I said, boy, I, I know how to do the QR codes. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to really be an extension of Pigskin Dispatch, the website and the podcast. And I, you know, I'm honored to have a, a lot of great friends that uh, know a lot of things about that era. So I, I talked to a few of them, you know, Ken Crippen and Timothy P. Brown, Joe Ziemba. And uh, we put some things together that uh, just tell the rest of the story. I tried to stay focused on Franklin and that 1903 season that they had. And I let uh, some of the other things like learning what a line buck is. You know, Timothy P. Brown is a, you know, a great uh, collegiate uh historian from the you know the turn of the last century and into the 1920s i said what a perfect person to have tell that what a line buck is and he educated me on it too so a couple other things and some of them was me reaching out and asking some questions because you know asking ken crippen about a syracuse you know team an all syracuse team which i knew a little bit about but not much but he grew up in that area and that's his area of expertise and uh that's I thought was very appropriate, and uh, it was great that they got to be involved with the book, and it makes a, a little bit special experience. And I'm not sure, I don't know of anybody else that's uh, done QR codes like that, taking them to podcasts. Uh, there's one link that takes you to uh, a game that was filmed during the time of this book, 1903. You know, Thomas Edison filmed what was, many believe is the oldest footage of live football, the Harvard Yale game in 1903. So. I connected them to the YouTube page of somebody else's uh, video of that, which is kind of cool too. Yeah. And as a reader, it was kind of nice sometimes to, you know, take a break from the task of reading and just listen or watch or, or, or what have you. So it was, it's a kind of a nice uh, addition uh, to, to this type of book. I, I think, you know, people might see it as an opportunity for, you know, things that, that they might be publishing in the future. Um, so, 
1903 Franklin All-Stars, you said there was a couple of PFRA articles that kind of spurred things for you. Um, after you, you know, when you look back on all the research that you did do, where did you actually get the bulk of your information then for this book? Well, a lot of it was going back to that old newspaper, going through newspapers.com. The, the Franklin newspaper was a wealth of information. Uh, like I said, this was, uh, they were, they were pretty ticked uh, at oil city from the year before. So, and this is, you know, before sports journalism. So this was just like a regular newspaper. It was almost a daily column. Anything that was going on from the beginning of October through the middle of December, almost daily they had something on this Franklin team because here was a bunch of out-of-towners that came into their town. I mean, Franklin's not a very big town even to this day. They're probably, maybe they were bigger back back in 1903 than they are today even. So anybody that come in as a visitor to their town, that was big news. And these were folks, uh, you know, that were heroes in walking the streets and, you know, eating at the restaurants and anything else, you know playing catch out in the street, probably who, who knows what they were doing or chasing the young ladies. So they got the, their news. Anything they did was in that newspaper and uh, it was a great wealth of information. Also the Venango uh, historical society, which is in downtown Franklin. And it's actually in a old building right next to where general Charles Miller uh, ran the Galena Signal Oil Corporation, and Charles Miller was sort of the main financier of, of the team. But it's right next door to his office building. You can look right out the window and you can see it. And a kind of neat thing when I was down there with my father and I were doing some research down there earlier this year, and there was a giant desk there, and the, the lady that was uh, running historical society said, oh, yeah, that was General Charles Miller's desk. We just bought it at an auction recently. So I'm sitting there, you know, touching General Charles Miller's desk, looking out the window that's facing his old building and doing research on his fabulous football team he put together. Huh, boy, that's great. <laughs> yeah, it's those moments that really, uh, really stand out to you when you're doing research. Um, so where do you think you found the most valuable piece of information while you were? Well, that, that is really hard to say because there, there was such a wealth of, I mean, the PFRA article was great. And that sort of eluded me. It, it, they got most of their information from a book that was published uh, probably about 15 years after this it was right around world war one. They published uh, a look back at the rivalry of oil city and Franklin in baseball, but it was a little booklet that the newspaper had put out probably 20 pages long. And in it, they had one chapter on this. Uh, they called it the, the 1904 championship team. They were a little bit errant on their, their year And the PFRA sort of picked up on that. They were off by a year and they had some of the names wrong. Um, and, and so the PFRA again followed suit. So I could tell that, uh, you know, Mr. Carroll or whoever wrote this article, I'm not sure who, who wrote the article, was just off a little bit because they got some information from somebody trying to recollect, you know, some 15 years later. And, uh, you know, some of the names like they were calling the manager, Bill Prince, it's, uh, you know, actually Dave Prince. And I got that information from the historical record and the newspapers of 1903 also told that story. So there's a lot of good information in all of them that I, I took a little bit from each. Okay. No, that's great. That's It's always good to hear when you're able to, you know, find um, errors which are understandable and and then um, and then correct them as you can. So uh, correcting the record is part of what I think uh, drives some of us to, to do what we do. Um, so when did you know that you could actually make a book out of it? At what point did you realize that, wait, this could be a whole thing? 
Well, I, I was so enamored with it. And at first I was just going to write, I, I did write a story on pigskin dispatch probably about a year and a half ago about it. And I, I got into it and I, I read it and I, I, got, I wanted to just get the story out on a certain date. And so I, I told the story almost, you know, very taking a lot of information from what I learned from the PFRA's uh, thing. And I bought that little booklet. I told you I got a copy of it. They had a commemorative issue come out. Venango Historical Society did in 2012. I was able to get my hands on a copy of that I bought through them. And so I, I had the actual, you know, print what they had in there, not the original, but the, uh, you know, you know, copyrighted uh, thing that they made years later. And I, so I got into that story a little bit and I said, man, I, I, then I started looking at it at newspapers.com and I said, oh, this is, there's so much more to this. And I always said, want to write, uh, write a book, you know, talking to people like yourself, RC and, and, you know, some of the authors I've had, you know, hundred and some authors on pigskin dispatch talking about football is you guys, uh, I'm always amazed at how you tell a story and I, I pick up a little bit from each of you and I, and you know, when we get done talking, I always ask a few questions. So I always learn a lot from, from those who've done it. And and I, I was always, you know, had that little urge of me to, to write a book myself. And I said, boy, this is the perfect story for something in my area. And I'm, I'm, I'm think I'm the right guy to, to do this. So I was happy to be able to do this. And uh, one of the things that you mentioned earlier was, you know, you talk about the rivalry with, with oil city, um, but really um, football in the area, it sounds like was, was kind of funded and grew out of oil financing is that right oh yeah you had oil city and franklin were both in the uh, venango county which is uh with, with titusville which is another city nearby i don't think titusville had a football team but uh oil the first commercial oil well was founded by edwin drake you know drake's follies they called it uh, just a few miles away from from where the, these three cities are and that's what boomed these cities into being you know oil men and you know immense wealth, a very rich, uh, you know, New York city was, uh, you could read articles where New York city was always saying, Hey, maybe we need some extra money on the wall street. Let's go down to Franklin or go to oil city. Cause that's where everything was happening. And they also general Charles Miller also controlled a lot of the railways, uh, because he sold signal oil, which was lubricant for, the locomotives and he reinvested that money into some of the locomotive industry so he owned the tracks or a good portion of the rights to him between new york city and pittsburgh and think about it 1903 they're building skyscrapers in new york city where are they getting their steel from pittsburgh so carnegie's selling it up to you know the the, the rich people the vanderbilts and the rockefellers and you know everything up up in new york city and cleveland so there's a big triumvirate uh so that railway line was very uh lucrative in, in that area okay and so uh would you say and this is jumping ahead a little bit in the book but would you say that when they formed this 1903 team that uh, because of the wealth um, that was present, that they just spared no expense. I I think well, first of all, they were they were a little bit mad. I mean, just a little bit back backdrop. The year prior, well, they, they had a, a rivalry with Oil City because they were both growing up about the same time. They were both wealthy, industrious towns, uh, so people had a little bit more free time because there was some money. So first, it started off the local boys playing a local boys in baseball. Uh, then it turned into to football as football started to progress as a, a better, a bigger sport and more popular sport. 
And then they both started bringing in some ringers, some outsiders to play and to coach. And it got to the point in 1902, they had three games scheduled. First time they played, uh, they each had maybe one or two ringers on their team uh, and ended up, uh, I think they had a tie game their first play, if I remember, I might be off on this. Second time they play, or no, I'm sorry, I think uh, Oil City. It was six to five Oil City. The first Oil, Oil City won that first one. That's yeah. right. So Thanksgiving Day they play to a 0-0 tie mm -hmm. and Oil City's not happy about it. So at the same time, that same weekend, the original National Football League of 1902, which was a three-team league, had two Philadelphia teams uh, based on the baseball teams, the Athletics and the Phillies, and a Pittsburgh team, the Pittsburgh Stars, that didn't have an affiliation with the Pirates, but there were some baseball stars that played on, on each of those because uh, they were the athletes of the day. Well, so the Philadelphia Athletics played the Pittsburgh Stars in Pittsburgh for that, that championship of that league on what we would call Black Friday. So Oil City loses by, or I'm sorry, ties uh, Franklin on Thanksgiving Day. They sent a representative down that night, hired the entire Philadelphia Athletics uh, football team to play the very next day on Friday, or I'm, I'm sorry, they played the championship on Friday to play on Saturday, two days after the original game. And Oil City beats Franklin and takes them for money with a totally different team, I think, except for one player uh, you know, starting on, on that team. So Franklin people are really miffed. They had, they've been hoodwinked. Uh, they paid their dues and they made bets for the next year, uh, mm -hmm. in escrow accounts. And Charles Miller was, I think he must have lost a lot, lost a lot of money because he went to manager Dave Prince, who was sort of on and off as their manager in years past and didn't really participate a whole lot in 1902 as the manager they had one of the, the players one of the local guys was playing was managing most of the, that year but he hired dave prince and said no you're the manager next year and i want a team i don't care what it takes i want a team that's going to beat oil city next year basically because they wanted their money back and they wanted their their civic pride back so dave prince just uh clarify that's spelled p-r-i-n-t-z is that correct yes it's, uh, it's not like the uh the artist formerly known as Prince, but <laughs> the uh, Dave Prince, he was a, a clothing merchant. He had played football though before, right? Uh, with the, with the nursery city, uh, nursery club 11. Yeah. The, the nursery club. And that's sometimes that's what the Franklin team was still called because the, the nursery club was a, a, a men's club. It was based, it was originally a literary club and they sort of based it on the fact that they were a nursery of, uh, aspiring minds because of being all the literary uh cultivation that they were trying to do so that's, that's sort of what nursery wasn't like a nursery for you know they didn't have a bunch of babies or raising trees or anything they were <laughs> raising uh, sharp young minds of gentlemen around the area of franklin and these people eventually this club became a well-to-do club uh the building still stands in franklin it was the franklin club for a while now it's a vacated building actually they were trying to sell it when i was down there last time it's a beautiful building uh and it still looks the same way it does in the, the images i have in the book you know so it's it's very close to to that but anyway um that that's what's sort of their that was their headquarters i guess you could say because that's where everybody would go after work and probably have a few cocktails and shoot the breeze maybe put together a football team at the same time so mm -hmm. and that and dave prince did play for that he played baseball for them he played football for a couple of years and he really wasn't an athlete he wasn't a large man uh you know but uh you know he, he did his best and 
when some bigger talented guys came in the all-stars, there really wasn't anybody that was a, a local in Franklin that could compete on that team. There were a few players, but they were sort of minor roles, you know, where they may have been a starter the year before. So that, uh, yeah, but Dave Prince was a great mind of being able to talk to people and, and putting a, a team builder, I guess you could say, and, uh, you know, had a great mind for that. Yeah, so Dave Prince was was uh, one of the key cogs in in getting uh, matchups and 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 recruiting uh, these all stars for 1903. But you do mention in the book that one of the other key uh, uh, people to think about is Tech Matthews. Why don't you speak a little bit more about Tech Matthews? Yeah, Tech Matthews is so, sort of one of those original outsiders that the Franklin people brought in. They knew that they needed somebody that had a good football mind that had played the game outside of Franklin. You know, a lot of teams were doing that all across the country. They were trying to bring uh, college students uh, or student athletes from the East that on successful programs to come to their town to teach them how to play the game of football and be a success. Well, they tried getting a couple different people. It sort of fell apart, and they came upon Tech Matthews, who was a, a superstar at Washington and Jefferson College, which is a little bit south of Pittsburgh, so still in western Pennsylvania. And Tech Matthews came up from Texas. He was a, a Native American uh, and a, a great athlete. I think he set some W&J records uh, at the time while he was down there. And was, you know, one of the, I don't think he made all American. I know, I know he didn't make all American, but he got pretty close to it. He was very well renowned as being a great running back. So he coached a team, I believe 1901 and 1902, he was the player coach. And 1903, he was still that manager. He had that, that pivotal role. And uh, he used some of those connections he had at W and J to bring some of the other athletes to the 1903 team. And, uh, so the other ones came from the East from that original national football league. So I imagine when you, when you wrote this article, you kind of had to work in reverse a little bit. You started with the 1903 team and moved backward. I, I'm guessing that's part of how, how right. it worked. Um, but it, so you had the information to start with about the 1903 team. It, how did you come to learn just how stacked that 1903 for 1903 Franklin team really was. I mean, cause I imagine what, what the information you started out with isn't the information that you ended up with. So at what point are you like, wow, this, they really were an all-star team. Well, you're, you're right. I sort of went backwards. I, I was first, I was trying to find a central character to the story to sort of tie it together, which ended up being Dave Prince. You know, my, but my first sight, you know, was a name that I recognized was, you know, Blondie Wallace was on this team. And I'm like, oh, you know, he had to be a central part of us. Well, he was, but he wasn't there from the beginning of the story. And then I, so then I sort of centraled on Tech Matthews. I saw oh, Tech's there, you know, he came, he came in, but he really wasn't at the beginning of the story. He was there through some of the, the rivalry games of Oil City and that, but uh, he, and he really, uh, you know, sort of fades out, uh, you know, gets, has an illness, which sort of takes him out of commission for, from finishing the story. But Dave Prince is there sort of from the beginning uh, and grew up in the town and all the way through uh, till the end. And, it just amazed me the names that were coming up in there and association, you know, when you're, they're talking first, they're, they're one of their uh, oil city players that they're playing against is, is doc Ben roller, who is probably the most uh, prominent name in all of college football and professional football at the time. You know, this, this guy was a stud and he played for oil city and he was 
a key driver. So I did a little bit of study up, up on him. Eventually he came and played the last couple of games with Franklin at the end of the 1903 season. And, you know, Blondie Wallace, uh, who, you know, Greg Fasseri wrote a, a great book and uh, Blondie Wallace is a, a prominent figure all the way through that with uh, Greg's great grandfather, uh, Bob Shiring, and they sort of play against each other on different teams all the way through. So I knew some history of Blondie. But then you, you start seeing some of these these other gentlemen that are are coming in there, you know, uh, you know, have like uh, Jack Lang and Twister Steinberg and Curly Davidson, uh, Jack Hayden. Uh, I mean, Jack Hayden was a great uh, Major League Baseball player too. He played for the Connie Mack for the Philadelphia Athletics and baseball, and under Connie Mack with the Philadelphia Athletics and football before he came to Franklin, and. These names kept popping up when I start when I, again when I read uh, Greg's book talking about Maslin and Canton a few years later in a scandal in 1906. Well, some of these guys are went over and played in Ohio after they played for Franklin and had great careers in Maslin and Canton and Shelby and Akron and some of those teams uh, that formed the the mythical Ohio League. So uh, yeah, yeah, they're, these are big names uh, in football at the time. Okay. Um... So one of the questions I have is, you know, we we when we do this kind of research. We deal a lot with um, uh, kind of secondary sources. You know, they they straddle the world of primary sources when we're talking about newspapers, right? They're newspaper accounts, but they're not necessarily, you know, the people that are involved. Um, did you actually find any artifacts that were, you know, related directly to the people that were involved with the team? No, I did not find direct artifacts on there, but I found there was a lot of uh, periphery stories. Uh, well, you, you know, I, I got some good information down at the PFRA convention because it's a West, it was down in Pittsburgh uh, this past year in 2023. And actually there was some good information because there was a few players that played on Franklin or played against Franklin uh, that were in the Latrobe Historical Society. And they had, when we went down there and visited a big group of us from PFRA, they had books open on the shelves and pictures and things to talk about. And I made some connections with the ladies that worked down there, got some information from about some of these guys. So it, it told some other parts of the story or it told about the, the era of football that maybe I wasn't uh, totally familiar with. Or, uh, you know, they had uh, like a full uniform, I think, of... Uh, uh, you know, one of the gentlemen that played on the Latrobe team and you got to see some of the equipment, you know, firsthand, which you don't always get to to see, you know, up close and personal like that, which is, it was kind of a, an intimate setting too. You got to be right up against the glass if you wanted to, to, to see it. And you know how that was. So that was all helpful and, and inspiring and, you know, got you pumped up for, for that. And that's right when I was writing in, you know, right in the middle, midst of writing the book. So it was kind of an exciting thing. And, uh, yeah, but so but I, no, I did not have artifacts in my hand, but I had a lot of inspiration from artifacts of the era. Which which of the players on that team would you wish you had seen play? For me, it was personally it would be Twister uh, Steinberg. Is, is that his name? Yeah, uh, you, you had a good description there of the way he sort of twisted and and lifted up his legs and stuff, and it reminded me of. Um, uh, I'm a fan of the Minnesota Vikings. So it reminded me of Chuck Foreman, the idea of him, you know, uh, <clears throat> doing the spin move and things like that. Um, so for me, Twister would have been someone that would have been fun to watch. Who was it that stood out to you while doing this research? 
Well, I think the and somebody I haven't even mentioned yet, and I think somebody I've really connected to, that's Herman Kirchhoff. Now, Herman Kirchhoff, I had never heard the name before until I started doing the research, but then I got into it. I mean, this this guy played for almost two decades, you know, played right in the, the mid-1890s, probably right after Pudge Heffelfinger. He might have been playing while Pudge Heffelfinger was doing, but he, I believe, played at Purdue a little bit, played under an assumed name. For, I'm not sure why he played under assumed name in college. Usually that was when they were in college and they played in the pros, but he did his first year at Purdue. And this, this last year he played under his own name Then went out West and played in Colorado and some like Denver athletic club or, or something like that. Played in Chicago's athletic uh, circuit for a couple of years professionally came and played for uh, in the na original national football league, played for the Pittsburgh stars, played for Franklin and then, played uh, for Canton, I think, right after that. So he, he played a lot of football on a lot of good teams and got a lot of good experience. And so I sort of connected to him. And he was a, a big lineman. And at the time, linemen were allowed to run with a the ball. They had tackle back formation, and he was a tackle. And, uh, you know, everybody described him as being a giant of a man. And can you imagine having a, you know, a, one of these big guys today on our lines, you know, taking the ball, you know, 300 pounder coming through the line. Herman wasn't 300 pounds, but, you know, and for us to connect to running the ball, you know, through the A gap and, you know, on short yardage, you know, it's just uh, it had to be a sight to see. So I kind of wish I would, I'd love to see that. And uh, just to meet him, I think it would be kind of cool. Sounds like he might be one of the players that you'd want people to appreciate more a little bit. That, that yeah, he's kind of lost in the shuffle maybe absolutely and actually one of those bonus uh, clips that we have uh joe ziemba who did knows a lot about chicago football and i i you know told joe i said hey do you know anything about this herman kirkhoff he goes yeah i know a little bit and and joe got under and did a, a really nice job of uh describing who herman kirkhoff is that's one of the bonus uh things i'm very grateful that he did and told a little bit more about herman so yeah I'd i want to get herman's name out there and and jack hayden the quarterback because i think he was a fantastic player uh curly davis i mean they're, they're, all these guys are just great you know <laughs> asa schrantz and uh you know it's just a w wd mcnulty it's just some of these guys just uh i, I connect to them i think i know them like i've, I've watched them all season because i read about <laughs> them all season but you, you really become connected to these these characters and they're the characters of what they did well, you, you recount a number of different games and um, which game do you think you would have liked to have witnessed? Um, and, you know, and the obvious one might be, you know, um, you know, one of the, <clears throat> well, there is no obvious one for me, actually, when I think about it, um, because, you know, the, they, they actually lost that series to Oil City in 1902. So when you get to 1903, this was such a dominant team. Um, which, which game is the one that you would have wanted to see? Well, it might be the obvious ones might be one of the ones in Madison square garden against, you know, in particular Watertown who Watertown was touted as being the top team in the world at the time, just and like they still exist. and they still exist. You're right. I think they're the oldest professional team still going, you know, so the, the red and blacks. And uh, I, I tried to get some more information about them and the, their historian guy who played for the Red and Blacks probably, you know, 20 years ago, he was unable to, to connect with me and, and help me out a little bit. But uh, I, he probably didn't want to tell the story of Watertown back then because they lost to Franklin. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but I think the game of that season, 1903 season, I would have liked to see 
was the East End game because the the East End, which is the old Jay Layless team from Pittsburgh, a lot of those representatives in 1902 played for that Franklin, or I'm sorry, for that Oil City team on Thanksgiving Day. That was a lot of their, they played with Ben Roller and they were the ones that, you know, had the tie. And I think they played the previous game where they beat Franklin six to five. So, and it was such a, a downer for Franklin not to be able to play oil city directly, but when they finally, and they tried scheduling East end all season long, I think there was two or three times where East end was promising to play. And then they'd cancel at the last minute because they're trying to, they're saying, well, you know, this Franklin team might be pretty good. Maybe we don't want to travel up there and play them. It's sort of what it felt like. And uh, finally they did play that. I believe it was the last game of the season of the regular season. And it was sort of, Franklin saying, okay, we don't get to play Oil City, but these guys were Oil City last year. So we're going to envision them being Oil City. And Oil City people came up and were betting on East End to beat Franklin. So it was a way for the fans to sort of get their money back gambling on, on a, you know, without being really, they were Oil City by proxy. And just, I think they got some satisfaction, maybe not the players as much because only one or two of them was there in 1902, but definitely the, the General Charles Miller and Joseph Sibley and Dave Prince and some of the other fans that were supporters of the team and wagering on the team, I think got a lot of satisfaction from East End. So I think that would be the game I'd love to see. Mm. Yeah, and and some of the descriptions that you gave of what the crowd was doing and <clears throat> sounded like there was some uh, <clears throat> pretty broken language <laughs> on the uh, on the sidelines and things like that. So sounds like it it would have been a lot of fun to see. Um, so one of the things about this team is, of course, you know Dave Prince uh, had to try to line up opponents and things like that. And and you know as someone who's writing about a team like this that most people have never heard of. One of the hardest things to do is to try to um, establish just how good they were um, based on the opponents that they played, right? Um, and so was there a team that you saw that Dave Prince was trying to line up that, gosh darn it, you wish they would have played that team uh, to help maybe elevate their standing a little more? Well, I think well, definitely Oil City would have been a great one to play. If Oil City could have put together the team that they had in 1902, I think that would have been a, a great thing because it was a great team. They, I mean, Franklin had a really good team in 1902. They just got outmanned by having that, you know, that athletics team come in and, and some of those East Enders playing for it. Uh, I would, I mean, they tried to get uh, Watertown in the regular season to play each other and Watertown was sort of reluctant to play. And I think that's sort of why Watertown ended up sponsoring uh, the, what we call the, the second world series of football. They called it the world championship at Madison square garden or, or something along those lines, but they ended up picking up the tab. Uh, their, their main, uh, their owner and financer end up putting up the $12,000 or $1,200 prize. And the second prize was seven fifty. He was doing it to he, trying to figure out a way to make a buck off of him playing uh, Franklin, I think. And why not put it in the biggest city in the world at the time and uh, in a, a nice venue like Madison Square Garden? And, you know, they had a tournament the year before that wasn't exactly a spectacular success, but there was there was some little bit of prominence there. Maybe they, you know, had some momentum to have football played there. And so that was. I mean, so I was glad that they finally played him. At, and there was no guarantee they were going to play each other. They both had to win their first games to, to get in there first. But 
they put together a very formidable four teams in that tournament that were playing, you know, Franklin and Watertown and the Oreos of uh, New Jersey, the Oreo club and orange, New Jersey as well. Very good teams. Um, I mean, Frank, those are two of uh, Franklin's closest games, both uh, with Watertown and with the orange athletic club were 12, nothing games. Very, very tight. Uh, and the Syracuse athletic club and Syracuse had won the tournament the year prior with some Watertown's players, the water Watertown's backfield with the Syracuse uh, 11, you know, up front. But of course they had, uh, you know, the, the Pierce brothers that played for Carlisle Holly and Bemis Pierce played on that Syracuse team in 1902. And uh, Bill Warner and his brother, Pop Warner also played on mm -hmm. that team in 1902. And uh, they were sort of a surprise to win in 1902, but they gave uh, Franklin all they could handle in Franklin, another 12, nothing game for, for Franklin, but it was another tough uh, outing. They really only had one game where they, they scheduled that they knew that they were probably going to win it pretty big. And that was a local college from Meadville, Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. Allegheny college. And actually mm -hmm. that's where my, my father worked at and retired from Allegheny College, not, not back in 1903, but, uh, <laughs> but in more modern times, but uh, every team that they scheduled, and it was kind of amazing. Their all their regular season games were home games. And when I first saw that, I'm thinking, God, that's weird. Why, you know, that, that, no wonder they were undefeated. They had all these home games. Well, it made sense when you got into it because at the time you had to, the, uh, common thing was for the home team to pay the expenses for the visiting team to travel down. If they needed fed, they'd feed them. If they need to stay overnight, they'd, they'd take care of all their expenses. And uh, you had to guarantee that because you might not get, uh, you know, the money to pay for that. It might cost them a thousand dollars to do that, which is a big money at that time. And when you're charging, you know, a quarter or 50 cents a ticket, it's, you need a lot of people to make up a thousand dollars and pay your own players. So, but Franklin had the, the wherewithal and the, the funds to do that uh, by their financial backing. So that's why they were able to bring teams in to play them. And they didn't bring, you know, cupcakes in to do them. They tried to find the best, most talented rosters they could to come and play them. Some, wouldn't come play them. Oil City wouldn't come play them. East End you know, took a couple times to finally get them up there. But you know, Youngstown Athletic Club out of Youngstown, Ohio, at Primrose Athletic Club, you know, out of Pittsburgh. These were big time teams and uh, touting themselves as being, you know, world champions coming into this. You know, they were, they were, you know, coming in advertised as being, you know, the the teams to beat in their respective areas, Jamestown, New York, uh, uh, the Syracuse team was, uh, had a really, I think they tied Watertown earlier in the season. So they were feeling pretty good about themselves. So all these teams came in feeling pretty high on the hog and, uh, Franklin sort of humbled them once they, they got to town. Well, yeah, they usually won by large margins. And, and you mentioned that they would sort of apologize to the locals afterward, like we promised they were a good team, but we're just better basically. Um, so, and that sort of leads me uh, <clears throat> to the, to the last question that I had, and that is, you know, and you kind of touch on this in the book on how, you know, they didn't have a team after 1903. And, and so, I mean, they, they, they were on top when, when they, when they decided not to continue. Um I have a feeling that you sort of have a, a thought about that in terms of the wisdom of it. Uh, I don't know. I had a sense of, of that in the book. Yeah. I I don't think, you know, first of all, they, 
it wasn't like uh General Charles Miller and Joseph Sibley made money off of it. I think they were, you know, they were losing money uh, from that. You know, first of all, you're you're putting a team up for two months in your hotels, and you're feeding them in your town, and you're paying them a wage, and you're making them happy. You're you're paying for teams to come in and play them, um, and the gambling wasn't what they thought it would be because other than playing Syracuse and East End and playing up at Madison Square Garden. That's the only times you really had some other teams that had some money to play. You know, Allegheny College, they weren't going to have anybody to bet against them, you know, against them. Probably, you know, Primrose and Youngstown, they probably wasn't much wagering action for them to make money. So, and they did up in Madison Square Garden, they won the prize money, which they they gave to the players, but they also had some lucrative bets outside with the Watertown faithful and probably got close to breaking even. But that, that wasn't, I think, totally it. I think they had nothing else they could prove. They had a team that was undefeated, unscored upon, only uh, a handful, only a couple times teams crossed midfield against their defense. Their offense, you know, without the forward pass, only running the ball was scoring darn near a point a minute in an era where there was the point a minute teams at Michigan who were only scoring like 0.7 points per minute. You know, Franklin with touchdowns being worth five points, scored you know over 0.9 points per minute. If touchdowns were worth six points like they are today, it would have been over a point a minute. So think about that for a second. It's, that's amazing to have a, a dominant defense, pro probably the most dominant offense I've ever heard of, uh, scoring and you know obliterating your opponents and uh, you know setting the world on fire. So I think that that had something to do with it. They they really couldn't go any further than that. And I, I think it sort of made some dominoes fall. Uh, Pennsylvania was sort of the, the birthplace of professional football in the, the early 1890s with Pudge Heffelfinger and John Brailier and, and, and such. And it sort of grew up there. And that's sort of where the, the power of pro football was. That's where the good teams were. Well, 1903, that was in Franklin, still in Western Pennsylvania. After that, you don't hear about Western Pennsylvania football till the 1930s when the Steelers come in and God, they don't do anything till the 1970s. So really uh, the, the, sh the shift of power in, in Pennsylvania and most of those players transferring over to Ohio and playing in the Cantons and Maslins, which aren't that far away, you know, you know because uh, Franklin's not that far from the, the Pennsylvania, Ohio border either. And I think that that was a paradigm shift in pro football there and sort of went to the Midwest uh, from sort of the Eastern, if you call Pennsylvania, the Eastern state. And I, I think it also, uh, you know, set uh, some things forward on, you know, pr propelling the professional football to a whole new place too, because teams weren't able to build a powerhouse team like that anymore. And I think that's sort of maybe, you know, maybe we forget about it, but maybe the NFL is pretty smart in having this parity in the league. So we don't have a team that's, you know, one dominant team. That's great for the fans of that team, but the rest of them, you know, can you imagine being a, a Syracuse fan thinking, Hey, my team is undefeated. We won the world series of football last year and you go in and you, you get beat 12, nothing. You can't get over, over midfield. You know, that'd be kind of humbling. So I think it, it did a lot for football, some lessons that we should learn. We don't ever want to have a team like that again. You know, I don't prescribe to it, but I want to honor what these guys did because they played by the rules and they did what they had to do and they did it very well. All right. So you got another project? <laughs> I've got a couple in the hopper I'm working yeah. on. Yeah, okay. sort, sort of, again, uh, Western Pennsylvania themed with the uh, football. So, but some good stories. 
Uh, I want to try to do some some story on uh, Coach Andy Smith, who coached the Cal Wonder teams of the 1920s, four national championships, uh, 1920 through 1923, and he had some great teams. He's actually from Dubois, Pennsylvania, originally played at Penn State and played for the, the Penn Quakers, uh, University of Pennsylvania, uh, when he was in college and coached those teams too before he went to Cal. So I, I haven't seen a lot on him written. I'd, I'd tell his story a little bit Uh yeah, and we got some some other things cooking too. All right. Well, that's great to hear. Once you get the bug, it's kind of hard to stop, isn't it? All right. Um, well, thanks, Darren. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk about this and um and uh, uh I I guess I'll just I just want to mention to people if they don't know that um I, I have been on the show a couple of times here and and I just want everyone to know that I do have a couple of books out there myself, uh, Mill City Scrum and Border Boys uh, by R.C. Christensen, uh, both about uh, some early pro football. And uh, and I'm working on a new one as well. So you and I, Darren, uh, w- when we get done with this podcast, maybe we'll talk about both th- those things a little bit more. Yeah. And folks, you you got to get the R.C.'s books because these things are great. I mean, the Border Boys is a, I mean, it's a fascinating look of something that we here, most of us in the States don't appreciate, but sort of that Midwest Canadian uh, U.S. border with these players playing back and forth, and it's a a, a great you know story there, and some things I learned a lot from that. And the Mill City Scrum, you know, learning a lot about you know Minnesota football and and especially the the Twin Cities, which I I found extremely fascinating. I'm not familiar with that area, so I learned a lot about that too. And there's some great players of players that you'll recognize that came out of those areas that uh, had started their careers and had some great careers there. So I definitely highly re- recommend both those books and go back and listen to the podcast that the RC was on. Uh, you know, he talks about both of those books. I think we talked about the first book a, a couple of different times. Uh, Mill City Scrum, we talked about that earlier this year in 2023. You can go go in, in the search of Pigskin Dispatch and just you know type in those and you'll find them. The podcast will come up in the stories. And uh, also RC was talking about, uh, was an expert on one of our Rose Bowl shows we did a year ago now. Doesn't seem like a year ago, but gosh, the time <laughs> flies. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Darren. Well, RC, I really appreciate you you coming on here and uh, sort of reversing the tables on me and, uh, you know, for for reading the book and taking interest enough to to suggest this and uh, talk about it. And uh, I really appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you. Peeking up at the clock, the time's running down. We're going to go into victory formation, take a knee, and let this baby run out. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleet Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.